0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From Backpage, I'm Neil White, and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing
1: as much as I was worried for the entire trip about, you know, being kind of discovered as a journalist and being discovered, and, and when the H-bomb goes off, then suddenly, like, the stakes are even higher then. I mean, we don't, we don't know if there's a nuclear war going on. but I mean, it's so little information. James Montague is a sports writer with a USP he
0: appears almost as interested in place as he is in story. The sporting narrative in his work isn't in second place, but you get the clear impression that there's no point in his telling it without looking at how it fits into the world around it, geographically, politically, financially... He's written books about football in the Middle East, the part-time national teams from all over the world who dream about reaching the World Cup, and his latest, The Billionaires' Club, attempts to follow the money behind the modern superclubs. he's on this series, to talk about a remarkable long-form piece he wrote for Bleacher Report in December 2017. Entitled Inside the Secret World of Football in North Korea, it's part travelogue, part sports journalism, and on both counts, it lands brilliantly because the writer knows when to switch between reporting... And observing. What we're left with is a groundbreaking report from Pyongyang with a focus on football and its place in the history, perhaps the future, of North Korea.
1: I mean I remember at university I studied politics at Exeter and I uh i, I did a, a module in southeast asian politics and my exam was on yu which is this north korean kind of quasi-religious ideology that kim il-sung the, the, the kind of founder of the nation has kind of instilled into the people so I'd i'd already had a bit of background about this kind of very strange place that had a very strange kind of political and almost quasi-religious underpinning. But when I went to Dubai, one of the first things that I did when I was there, I saw that there was a World Cup qualifier on. And it was it was North Korea versus the United Arab Emirates. I thought, well, I've got to go to this. I mean this is gonna be brilliant. And I went along. I had a little microphone, and I thought, I'm not going to see any fans, obviously, but I'll maybe I can get into the tr- dressing room. Maybe I can get into the tunnel because there was no in those days. There was, I mean, this is only 2004, but there was no kind of security. You know, people. It was very lax around these international matches. You could just kind of wander around. And so I got there, and suddenly there's there's literally thousands and thousands of uh, well, hundred. I mean, a couple of thousand at least of these. Uh, North Korean fans, and I, I, I thought, where have you come from? I mean, I've never met a North Korean whilst I've been in Dubai. Uh, half of them were, were women, and they were dressed in very colourful uh, traditional outfits, and the men were all dressed in exactly the same type of kind of you know Mao era kind of kind of suits in a way with these pin badges of the Dear Leader or the Great Leader on. And I was fascinated that you couldn't really get to speak to them because there was a ring of North Korean security around them. But I remember they all left after making all this noise and this very kind of ethereal sound that they are making during the game. And they got back onto these buses in silence and disappeared. And I remember... What was left behind was a piece of wood, which is one of the hand clappers that the women would have. They had these kind of pieces of wood attached to their hands with orange kind of silk or thread around them, so that they could make more noise and not damage their hands from from clapping. And I just I was like, I need to get into North Korea. I need to find out more about this. Uh, like, where do these fans come from? What other what football teams there? What does the league look like? Why are they so good as well? I mean, this was the thing. I mean, in Asian terms, they were getting to the kind of last stages of the Asian Cup. They were, they were getting close to qualification. Yet we knew nothing about it in this day and age where we know everything about everything in football around the world. You can bet on third division. You can bet on, on conference football at the uh, betting place down the road from me in the central Belgrade. No one knows what the league system was like in North Korea. No one knows what the academy system was. I mean, no one could even really mention many players. Um, So, you know, I I started this kind of journey of trying to find out and periodically trying to get in touch with the FA. They never replied. They've got a hotmail address, a single hotmail address. All these years that I've applied, I've I've written to them dozens and dozens of times. and They've never, ever replied to me. Um, And so uh, 2010 World Cup, I I tried then to get in when they'd qualified. In the end, I ended up going to Switzerland because they had a, a training camp up in the Alps, and uh, actually went and met uh, Yong Tae si who was this—he was—he was kind of nicknamed the People's Rooney uh, by, I think it was the Sun or something like that. But I mean, it's—it's it, it's, it's been bastardised that that's what he's known as in in North Korea, but he's not known like that in North Korea. It was it was kind of a Sunism, um, and so I kind of met him, and they were very wary of me, but kind of you know they were kind of curious. Until there was this... There was a a South Korean ship was sunk and it was North Korean missiles that sunk it and then suddenly I was CNN because I was there for CNN and therefore I was essentially the CIA and I was told that by one of the North Korean uh, interpreters uh, and all doors were shut for me after that. So it was... I'd kind of given up hope on, on getting in and then finally... Last year there was this. There was It's difficult to think about this now. Now that we've had the the H bomb and we've had Kim Jong Un and all this fallout with uh, President Trump, but last year there was uh, a kind of thawing of relations um, with the outside world, and so journalists were starting to be allowed to go in. I think AP or AFP had a bureau that was open there, and some stories about life in North Korea started getting out. And I thought I'm I'm going to try and. I'm going to try and get in. I'm going to use this opportunity. Asian Cup qualifiers are on. There's a game against Malaysia. Um, I'm going to see. Again, I tried the the hotmail address. No no reply. But I have now a lot more contacts in Asian football. So there are people who are working behind the scenes to see if I could get in, get accreditation with the AFC, um, go in like that, or maybe go in with the opposition, go in with the Malaysian team, because they, they have to give... You know, passes and accreditation to to Malaysian journalists. And uh, then, of course, uh, Kim Jong Un's half brother was assassinated in, in Kuala Lumpur Airport in this bizarre. A plot that involved two women thinking that they were uh, being filmed for a reality TV show, but had in fact smeared nerve agent, a nerve gas kind of agent on uh, the face of Kim Jong un's half brother, and he died in that airport. So he was basically assassinated by the regime. And, and then, you know, all hell broke loose. Malaysia cut off diplomatic relations. Uh, Malaysians within North Korea were, were being held essentially hostage by the regime. Um, and so that game got postponed and I thought oh, this isn't going to happen this is definitely not going to happen but then I got in contact there's a company called Corio Tours who I've been periodically in touch with over the years and they run a kind of essentially tourism kind of packages into North Korea run by a British guy who made the film The Game of Their Lives the, the, the film that uh, from a documentary of, from a few years ago about the 1966 North Korean team that You know, did very well, got to the quarterfinals, famously beat Italy 1-0. So these guys knew about football and they knew that I was interested in football. And so they agreed, even though I was a journalist, and they knew that it was kind of quite dangerous for them to let me into the country uh, under their kind of wing, as it were. Uh, They agreed to send me in um, and I paid for, uh, you know, Bleach Report agreed to pay for the tour. And the way around it about not having kind of official access was that we organised a one-person tour. I knew there was a football match on. Lebanon was playing uh, North Korea. This is the first game in, in Pyongyang for two years. Uh, I could go there. I, I could watch a women's football match. I could go visit some stadiums. I could visit the Pyongyang International Football School. I could visit a school. I could, you know, there was all these things and I could go on my own, which made things a lot easier. I was worried that what if, what if they find out, you know, I'm a journalist or it, it becomes expedient for them to have a Western journalist uh, arrested as a as a bargaining chip for whatever it is that they want to do, which happens periodically as well. And obviously we had the Otto Van Bier case of the young kind of 21-year-old American kid who who kind of essentially came back brain dead and died a few days later after being jailed for stealing a propaganda poster. So I had a big discussion with my partner, who's also a journalist, so she understands this. But I mean, I've got a two-year-old daughter and is this risk worth it? And I was in the end, I thought, you know, this is what I do. And, you know, this is the only time, the only chance I'm going to get to do it.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, I was going to ask how that itinerary was put together, you know, from, from the, the academy and the school and the women's match, the interview with uh, Jon Anderson and your accreditation for the match. All of this stuff was basically put together for you as a non-journalist.
1: Well, not all of it. Um, some of it, I had this very basic tour. So we'd go to Come Suzanne Palace of the Sun, which is where you go and see Kim, Yo- uh, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, uh, their embalmed bodies lying in state. So, of course, I'm going to go and see that tour. And there's a few other bits and pieces. We go and see the kind of Fatherland Liberation Museum, which tells a completely different batshit crazy story of what happened during the Korea War. Um, of course, everybody gets a completely different version of events. Um, So these are, you know, some very basic things that you kind of have to see when you're there. And then around it, I said, well, I want to see this. What about this? What about this academy? And they made some calls and I said, well, about a a football match, a a kind of local football match. And nobody knows when the football match, there isn't a fixture list. Literally outside the stadium, outside the May Day Stadium, which is vast, the biggest football stadium in the world is so impressive. Absolutely huge. They literally put a board out with, with the next day's fixtures on it um and and that's and that's your fixture list so i got a call uh or or i got a call to my hotel phone by uh, my guide saying oh yeah we found out um outside the stadium there's a women's match tomorrow do you want to go to it and i was like yeah i'll go to that and they go yeah it'll be 30 it'll be 30 euros for a ticket and i'm like all right well Fair enough. I'll, I mean, they're they completely rinsing me out, but I'll, I'll pay that 30 euros because um, I'm pretty sure it's free to get into every game. But anyway, so I went to the game and so that's kind of how it worked out. And with Jorn Andersen, the, the kind of the German-Norwegian coach, used to be at Mainz, uh, he, he's quite a bristly character. But I'd been trying to contact him for months over email because I'd, know, I'd met a couple of Norwegian journalists and they'd give me his email address. And of course, he's got to be very careful about what he says and what he does because he's he's being paid for. But, you know, that's his job. And he lives in North Korea and obviously has to be very careful about things. But um, amazingly, the day before I left, he replied and he said, yeah, OK, I'll talk to you. And uh, I I can't talk to you before the games. I'll talk to you afterwards. And I was like, yeah, great. All right. Here's my hotel. Here's my phone number. I, I I could get a SIM card when I was there, so I, I paid the two hundred fifty dollars for my SIM card, essentially to make one phone call, um, and then and then I texted him, and and the day after the game, I went to his hotel in this it is revolving restaurant on the forty fourth floor of the Corio Hotel, um, and sat there with him, and we had this, you know, very interesting one hour conversation about life and work in in North Korea, and and he was also extremely. Um, skeptical of the media because he's had a lot of bad things written about him in Germany and in Norway specifically about the morality of taking a job like the like the North Korea job just the same as as your 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 piece does this conversation
0: fast it's, it moves at a cracking pace and you, <laughs> you, you rush past you rush past points that people might have to kind of double take did he say did he say that was the world's biggest football stadium yeah and it's true, you know the Madey Stadium capacity of one
1: hundred and fifty thousand. I think it's. I, I did some rudimentary, and this is one of the skills you 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 pick up as a football and sports journalist is how to you've got to size up crowds and stadium stadium size. Uh, and so I, I think it's about one hundred twenty thousand. Uh, and for now, it's the biggest stadium in the world, um, spectator stadium. Although it's going to apparently be overtaken by a new um, college football stadium in Texas, which is going to open next year. So but for now, it's the largest stadium in the world. Um, and, and also, we take in the sweep of the conversation, we take it as read
0: that, you know, we're, we're discussing a, a complicated football story, but a football story nonetheless. And already we've mentioned the sinking of a warship, an assassination, <laughs> uh, an unwitting assassination, and and of course, an H-bomb. So it it wasn't a trip without risks and it's not a story without complications. And one of the things, I don't know how much you thought about structure before you actually went, before you knew what you were going to come back with. But you have to piece together the kind of narrative or the kind of expose of the football world. But by necessity, you're also kind of telling a history lesson and you're also providing somewhat of something of a rough guide to North Korea. So you're, you're holding all of this stuff as we move through the piece. Um, and I wonder at what point you started to put the, the fragments together and decide that you were going to go in and come out with the game, for example. At, at what point you were going to give us a brief history of North Korea? Um, you know, h- how much of your movement
1: around Pyongyang you were going to bring into the story? I have a rough framework about what I know that there's a game taking place, and uh, Lebanon are playing North Korea on this date in Pyongyang at the Kim Il Sung Stadium. So I know that I know that uh, I will be visiting a, an academy. I know that there might be a local team game to watch and and, and a, potentially a, an interview with the with the coach afterwards. And then it's a then everything that happens happened completely by accident or not not by design anyway. Let's say chronologically, it starts at a gate at the airport, uh, Beijing airport, waiting for a flight to go to Pyongyang where I meet the Lebanese national team. And they're all about to go into North Korea. All of them have been hearing exactly the same news that we've all been hearing about uh, missile tests and potential nuclear bombs going off. Nothing had gone off, but it was a very tense time. And, you know, some, you know I, I thought, oh start speaking to some of these guys i lived in lebanon and i'd written a lot about lebanese football so i knew some of the teams that they played for i knew some of the guys i knew the kind of team manager and uh one of the guys goes oh you're english yeah there's a there's an english guy over here and he goes around takes me to omar bugiel who is uh he's actually german but he's got an english accent because he's been in england for so long he's a young striker for forest green rovers in league two and he'd been called up for the national team to make his debut um, and there was this young English kid, like, yeah, he was really worried. And, you know, it was, I was like, look, let's let's stay in touch. I'll try and find you at your hotel. Um, so I found out what hotel they were at. And then then I get to meet Sunni Saad, who is the, um, he's uh, American born, Lebanese international, but born and raised in the US, played for the under, uh, all the way up to the under 20s in the US system uh then his opportunities kind of dried out a place for in mls at the moment for sporting kansas and um eventually he decided to go and play for lebanon and started scoring goals and he he's one of their main strikers but he is an american citizen and so this was the when i met him at the airport it was the day after uh the american government had instituted a ban on american citizens going into into north korea in retaliation for the otto vanbier case so it was, you know, he was just like, get you know, I told my team manager, get that American passport as far away from me as possible. Um, you know, he was, he was like, what happens if I score a goal and they find out I'm American, you know, because there's so much anti-American propaganda in that country. And so as much as I was worried for the entire trip um, about, you know, being kind of discovered as a journalist and being discovered and, and when the H-bomb goes off, then suddenly like, well, I mean, the stakes are even higher then. I mean, we don't don't know if there's a nuclear war going on. I mean, there's so little information. Uh, This, you know, this kind of slight opening up under Kim Jong-un. I mean, there's no uh, opening up when it comes to... uh, He came to power after his father died, um, kind of five years ago now. And although there's no political, uh, uh, greater political rights or uh, human rights, um, there has been a kind of slight economic reforms um that have been have been brought in and one of the things that foreigners can now do is get a sim card when they enter the country and it costs 250 dollars and you get a tiny amount of data but you kind of can get some access to the internet i mean it's impossible to then top up um but you know for a few uh for a few hours you can get the internet and it just so happened that i had uh the internet on my phone but it ran out shortly afterwards uh, so when I came out of the Kim Suzanne Palace after seeing uh Kim Jong uh Kim Il's body um I turned on my phone and I got I got a push alert from the New York Times saying there'd been a a 6.3 on the Richter scale explosion in northern North Korea they suspect it to be an H bomb and I was like oh my god like, what like okay so what next um but it, it's ironic that I got this in North Korea because You have to go via China to get to North Korea. And in China, of course, you can't get the New York Times online because of the great firewall of China. You don't have access to Twitter. You don't have access to uh, Google or YouTube. It's all banned. So there's this weird situation where you kind of have freer Internet access in North Korea as a foreigner than you do in China. But then it runs out and... You know, so it's like the old days. I've I've got no idea. I speak to the Lebanese players. They've got no idea what's going on. And on the streets of Pyongyang, it's quite peaceful. You know, most North Koreans didn't actually find out about the explosion for another 24 hours when the state media, because of course they have no access to the internet, is completely banned. And they have their own intranet within the country. Uh, But it it wasn't announced for for another day or so. So it was quite, it was in this bizarre situation where... We all certainly as the kind of foreigners in the country were all like, what's going on with kind of, you know, is, is this the start of a nuclear war? Um, whilst people just going about their, their normal business in, in Pyongyang and, you know, no panic, no, nobody, no, no celebration, nothing it's just like a normal, normal day. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: And Omar, uh, Omar is fantastic. Uh, Towards the end of the piece, um, when all this stuff has gone down, not least the um, the testing of a hydrogen bomb, his primary his primary concern seems to be that he has to face Exeter City the following Saturday. Which is,
1: I mean, he really he really was he was like, oh god, you know, like my coach is going to be really upset because I didn't play. We're playing Exeter City, you know, and it was. then it was almost like doing an interview for local radio you know you're talking to the kind of like the young striker on like a non-league side and you know and then he slipped into this you know, yeah, you know, we've got ecstasy, you know, it's going to be a tough game. And I'm, we're standing in Pyongyang Airport with like, all our bags are being torn to pieces by the customs officials around us because they're, they're tearing them apart looking for books or USBs that have got books or illegal films on them. And we've got this kind of, you know, almost kind of mundane conversation about him wanting to go home to have, uh, you know, he wanted to go have a full English breakfast. You know, that's what he wanted. He wanted to go back, he wanted a full English breakfast and he wanted to get into his car and drive on the motorway. And it was, it was just... I, in that moment, I think he was the most English person
0: I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, and he was going to take one game at a time and uh, and, yeah, all, and, yeah, and all yeah. the rest of it. Um, that's a good point for us to move kind of onto football in North Korea, which doesn't get lost, you know, despite all the different um, kind of angles that you're trying to hold in this piece. You kind of play a really interesting... I mean, stuff that I had absolutely no idea about... Um, following a timeline from 1966, you mentioned the documentary about the North Korean team that come out of 1966 in their own terms, probably as well as the England team of 1966 come out of that same World Cup, right? Are they kind of held on a, you know, a pedestal that's comparable mm-hmm. to, to Jeff Hurst and, and Bobby Charlton and those guys?
1: Well, it's, you know, obviously I'd got to 11,000 words and there was so much nuance that I could add to this. But one of the most interesting things about that 66 team of North Korea, and I I urge people to watch the game of their lives. That documentary, which um, goes back and finds the surviving members of the 66 team back in 2001, is, is just a wonderful, wonderful watch. You'd think after that they would go home heralded as heroes. But they weren't heralded as heroes. It wasn't that they, they uh, you know, there just was no propaganda uh, worth in it. Kim Il Sung was very different to his son, who did see the propaganda worth of sport. Um, he didn't really see any propaganda worth, and so they went back to their normal lives. There wasn't films made about them. They weren't. Uh, nobody really knew who they were. And what's it? Uh, what, there's a there's a metro system on Pyongyang in Pyongyang, and these old west. Uh, west german trains down there and they have tv screens and there was a when i was down there they had a a film about the 2006 i think it was a 2006 asian cup women's team the one won the title uh and so they have this they had a film about women's football like a fiction film like a fictionalized version of events um and so you you now see these characters these these players who you could you recognize because they're festooned with medals kind of turning up in these Matches to give advice on the spot guidance, as my guide kept on calling it, because that's what Kim Jong-un and the, the Kim family would. If they're seeing a dam or if they're seeing a, a football pitch or if they're seeing a nuclear reactor, they give on the spot guidance, which, of course, is uh, good enough for them to follow. And so these guys are there giving advice. They're, they're kind of like a plot point now in, in North Korean films about sport which is quite interesting so they've been they've been reclaimed and it seems from the piece that that is
0: part of Kim Jong-il's legacy the the focus on sport and football his father was in charge when that took place and he would have kind of grown up with that story and he his focus on sport and in particular football really made me curious about what's happening at the moment with North Korean football and, and what might happen in the years to come I mean you talk about this sort of hot housing that's happening at this state academy, um, and I mean it doesn't sound too dissimilar to what might happen in a comparable location in in the West. But there's also this one element when you're reading it that's obviously missing, and that's external competition. It's playing against great players from other countries because of the nature of North Korea. And then this link with ISM in Italy pops up, and you're like, "Wow, that might you know that might be it."
1: Well, this is yeah. I mean, they do because. Of course, one of the things that really interested me about North Korean sport was it's one of the only times you see a a representation of North Korea outside of its borders, apart from a missile. And they've only just recently started playing in kind of regional internationals for club competitions. There's a there's a AFC Cup, which is the equivalent of the Europa League in Europe. And 4, 425, the army team, which is pretty much the biggest team in the past few years, now play in that. And they got to the knockout stage of this Europa Cup style um, Asian football kind of tournament. So yeah, one of the big things is getting international um, games against against a, a top opposition, as well as having top coaches there, which is one of the reasons why Jorn Anderson was brought in. It was a, effectively a kind of no, a knowledge transfer. Bring a European in that will give... Uh, European advice about how to kind of restructure football. And what's interesting when speaking, we'll talk about Jorn Anderson in a minute. He, he talked about this, about how they wanted that. He wasn't there just to follow their orders. He was there to tell them what they should change so that they could be more competitive internationally and um he wasn 't in part of this um, Pyongyang uh, international football school. that was something that was started in two thousand and thirteen but the ism academy is all connected to this, so young players are being sent to this academy in outside of Perugia in Italy, where the state pays you know not inconsiderable fees to, to have them there where they are then trained up and then uh, they they get picked up by Italian or other european teams and you know, there's there's one example where this has worked very well uh, is a guy called Han Kwang Song, who I'm not sure if your listeners would have heard of him. But, uh, some of you in Italy may have done, but he played for Cagliari last season in Serie A and became the first North Korean footballer to score in Serie A. But then he goes to Perugia this season, scores a hat-trick on his debut, um, and, you know, he's got a professional contract there. But The, the problem is, is that, these dozens and dozens of players that are going out there are also a source of hard currency for the regime because one of the ways that the sanctions have the sanctions have crippled North Korea, and these have been in place since they pursued a nuclear agenda in the ni- uh, early 1990s. Um, and uh, one of the things that the North Korean regime has done is sent out uh, laborers to work in Russia, China, the Middle East, where the the regime skims 90% of their wages it's essentially a form of slave labor but that brings hard currency back into the country and there's there is a question about whether the same thing is happening here with the footballers because ultimately if you get a decent contract at a european football club you know you, you could be pulling in a million pounds a month you know uh i mean you'd have to have a very good contract but let's say 5 million pounds a year suddenly that is something that would be uh worth it if you had 10 15 players there that's a lot of hard currency to be bringing into a country that has been starved for it for a long time so a lot of these players ended up not playing for italian teams fiorentina had signed a couple of north koreans but pulled out because they thought that the uh they they would actually contravene sanctions so fiorentina would be you know would would have broken the law if they'd if they'd sign these players, the way that Cagulari and Perugia have got round it is by saying, yes, we've been shown evidence that the uh, the, the, the bank account is it's a named bank account. Uh, so therefore, it is going to him directly. But we, like with everything in North Korea, we just really don't know. And this is what leads you to, I mean, there are so many interesting voices in the piece, but this
0: is what leads you to an email interview with Antonio Razzi.
1: He I've been I've been trying to get hold of him for a long time. So Antonio Ratti is this you you may have seen him. If you've seen any North Korean stories in The Sun or The Mirror uh or Gold.com in the past kind of six months all of them are attributed to Antonio Razzi who is a senator right wing senator from Italy very flamboyant guy i mean i think i retweeted a picture of him yesterday he's like all over this 6 foot blonde model at a mercedes show you know i mean just it, it almost like the st- you couldn't you couldn't distill a greater stereotype of an italian man than antonio razzi he always plays up to it you know and this guy is a senator and he has become, as he said to me, a personal friend of Kim Jong-un. And he frequently travels to Pyongyang with other there's Liga Nord senators, take, takes them along as well to talk about uh, culture exchange, business opportunities. And so there's this dialogue has been created between him and Kim Jong-un. And that's how this this ISM Academy connection came. He basically broke He does the deal with the North Korean regime and brings them over. And, of course, he has a completely myopic view of of what North Korea is. You know, the world has got it wrong. There are Labour camps. Kim Jong-un is a Democrat. Uh, All these kind of crazy, uh, crazy things. But, I mean, I suppose he genuinely believes that they're true. Um, But one of the things that he keeps on saying in these interviews is telling people that Kim Jong-un supports a different football team. So I, 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 asked, I saw that there was a story in the Sun saying Antonio Razzi says that Kim Jong-un is a Manchester United fan. So there's a big, you know, Old Trafford and Kim Jong-un. I can't remember what the headline was, but it was quite a funny one. And then uh, I asked him, so, so he's a Manchester United fan? No, I never said that. Okay, so so who does he who does he support? Oh, he used to sneak into the San Siro as a child and see AC Milan because he was at a Swiss boarding school uh, as a, as a teenager. So I was like, okay, so according to you, he's an AC Milan supporter. Okay, and when I've seen other interviews, he said he's an Inter Milan supporter, AC Milan supporter, Manchester United supporter. Um, that he supports Cagliari because Han Kwang Song plays for them. That he plays Perugia, and he's been this, <laughs> he has been the source of this kind of web of intrigue and lies about who who kim jong-un actually supports so although i say it's ac milan in the piece i mean who knows i mean it might be burton albion for as
0: all i know it could be forest green rovers
1: let's not rule that it could out Could be forest green rovers i mean that's not too yeah we shouldn't rule, rule that out okay look
0: i have to be respectful of your time james i know that since this piece came out you are a very busy man one last question i want to know um in the closing stages of the, um, the qualified that you're actually watching between Lebanon and North Korea, how close did we come to a, diplo- a serious diplomatic boy related incident?
1: So you have this, this story of, of this country and the H-bomb going off and everybody being terrified. And it all comes... Down to this game. That's the reason why we're there at the Kim Il Sung Stadium, fifty thousand people, although they say a hundred thousand people there, it's fifty thousand. And you know, it's it's full. It's full of school children, basically. And they very respectfully file into the into the ground and you know, they sing I I, I have a translator with me and they sing Glory, Glory, Kim jong-un you know, and and you know, they they're they're fantastic. They're really, really good. I mean, they, 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 they go 1-0 up. Lebanon equalize. Uh, Lebanon are really struggling. The heat, uh, it's, it's a, it's an artificial pitch as well. So it's really tough, tough for them to play on. Um, and with a few minutes left, uh, North Korea, uh, get the winner. And the atmosphere is absolutely incredible. It's rocking. Like people just, cause there's so few, uh, Ways It's such a restricted society. There are so few moments for catharsis. And you felt this. You felt this cathartic moment that was, it was joyful. And you don't often see that when you see people talking about North Korea. The joy that people can have. You just see sullen faces, labour camps, which is all true. But of course, humans are humans and you find people have moments of joy. And this was one of them. And then... It goes into injury time. Sunni Saad is brought on as a late striker to try and kind of force an equaliser. And there's this moment where in the, I think it's the 91st minute and the ball goes out for a Lebanese throw. And the ball boys, who are all from the Pyongyang International Football School, by the way, who I just met, one of them is, you know, takes his time, holds the ball, doesn't give it back to this guy. And it's a Lebanese uh, substitute, grabs the ball off him and i watched this happen and bearing in mind there's no tv cameras the match isn't being uh shown anywhere outside of north korea you know there's no there's no youtube feed nothing so if i hadn't seen this this would have disappeared in history uh but i see this guy like literally get the ball and i at first i thought he's he's hit him but he he, he hadn't hit him um but then he just blasts the ball at this guy at this kid and and it whistles past him but the referee sees what's happened and he sends him off gives him a red card and the crowd start going crazy I mean there was some things getting thrown down from the stands there was a real um, moment that it looked like it was going to get really ugly and there was uh, an example a few years ago where North Korea and Iran played each other in a World Cup qualifier and that descended into a riot because of the referee um, which was then very difficult for the authorities to control so it does occasionally happen But what happened this guy, the Lebanese team manager, not the coach, uh, could see what was was happening. And he grabs this player and he very publicly beats him in front of the stand. So he's just standing there, slapping him on the top of the head, dragging him along a little bit, stopping, slapping him, slapping him. And he was, I don't know, maybe I don't know how he came to this conclusion that this is what you do. But this very public or the dispensing of justice meant that the cr- the crowd kind of accepted it. Yes, he's been dealt with and he's been dealt with in a brutal manner. And so the, the, the crowd simmered down I honestly thought that he would get arrested after that game. And he wasn't. I went to the team bus to find out what was going on. And they said, yeah, we've got him on. We're getting him back to the hotel. They also had to stay another day after the game uh, because... Uh, there isn't a flight out. So he was sitting in his hotel room for another 24 hours, not knowing whether the door was going to get knocked and he was <laughs> he was going to get dragged out. But then, of course, what happens next? He gets sent off. The ball goes over to the other side of the pitch. Uh, there's a free kick. Hassan Maktouk, the captain of uh, Lebanon, then just punts the ball at the goal, misses everybody. Last kick of the game, it's an equaliser and it's 2-2. And... It just complete deflation in the in the stadium and the the whistles blown and there's silence there's absolute silence and everybody leaves quietly orderly back out into the night as if it never happened.
0: Thanks to James Montague for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with James on Twitter at James Piotr. That's J-A-M-E-S-P-I-O-T-R. If you like this story, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes. And if you've read a story that you think would make a good feature for us, let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email backpage at backpagepress.co.uk.